Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content. From inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. In this episode, we listen to Rebecca Ganan talk about healthy aging research. They discuss topics such as what drew them into healthy aging research, McMaster's and Bolden project, and the co-design process. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Rebecca. I am so happy to have you here today. And as we start this episode, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Thanks, Ruth. Uh, So my name is Rebecca Ganan. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Nursing at McMaster University, and I'm also the scientific director of the Aging Community and Health Research Unit in the School of Nursing. Thank you. And this is one of the reasons why I was so happy to connect with you today, because I understand that you are interested in healthy healthy aging research. And I would love to learn more about that. Even as colleagues in the School of Nursing, I don't really get the opportunity to hear about your research. So I'm curious to start us off, what brought you to this field of healthy aging research and what initially drew you in? Sure. So Um, So in terms of what initially drew me to this work, I had an opportunity when I was conducting my postdoctoral work to come and work with, you know, our esteemed colleagues, Dr. Jenny Plow, Dr. Maureen Markle-Reed, and and Dr. Ruta Valaitis, who has, you know, all of whom have recently uh, retired, but to come and work with them uh, and focus on projects that were uh, looking at research to support older adults who are living in the community. So the major emphasis of that work in in our aging community and health research unit has been focused on older adults living with multimorbidity, so living with multiple chronic conditions and their family caregivers and supporting them to live as well as they can and to manage their own uh, chronic conditions uh, and support them to live well for as long as they can. Um, So, and then since that time, I would say our our focus has shifted a little bit because we tend not to just focus on thinking about people who are living with medical complexity, um, but really thinking about people who are living with a variety of health conditions, um, but that's not necessarily the focus of their lives. It's really Mm -hmm. thinking about people who are living in the community and how do we support people um, to age as well as they can within that context and think about the intersections between health and social care. So thinking about, uh, you know, someone as a whole person, they may live with a variety of of medical or health-related conditions. They may live in the context of a wide variety of social conditions as well. And we know how much those uh, those kinds of conditions can shape people's overall picture of their health. And so for me, um, uh, to tie back to my nursing background, uh, in my career, I worked as a public health nurse. uh, Mm -hmm. So in terms of when I was doing direct practice, and so I was working in terms in communities and partnering with communities, uh, really tying back to those basic principles of primary health care. So thinking about how do we make uh, services and supports accessible and appropriate for people? 
um, how do we engage members of the public, have them sort of engage in public participation in decision-making about their own health? How do we promote their health? How do we consider appropriate technology? And not even just thinking about things like actual digital technologies, but how do we ensure that how we communicate with them, things we might share with them, things we might link people to or support them with are really appropriate for them in terms of um, for example, their health literacy, what's meaningful to them, how do we break down barriers to engagement, and then how do we collaborate with other partners. So, you know, when we're in the healthcare system and more focused on acute care, we might have interdisciplinary teams, but when we're in the community, we tend to have intersectoral teams. So we're mm -hmm. working not only with people in the health sector, but working with other partners in the community, in the social sector and other sectors to collaborate together around initiatives. And although that's sort of going over those basic principles of primary healthcare, that is so foundational to the work that I do and mm -hmm. translates into how I conduct research and the kind of research that I do. Oh, very much. I can I can see that and I, I hear what you're saying. This is actually a great segue into the particular research grant that I wanted to talk with you more about because a few months ago, I saw that you received this great grant for the Emboldened Study. And so immediately when I saw that announcement, I reached out to you and I said, Rebecca, I want to hear more about this. And would you be willing to do a podcast episode with us? So tell me about this emboldened study. And I, I really feel like based on what I know of the study, it really ties in those areas of interest that you just described. Great. Thanks, Ruth. Yeah, so I love to talk about Embolden. I would say it is a source of joy and a, so a source of pride for me because it is a project um, that I feel like is poised to make meaningful differences in people's lives in ways that they've identified. So, and, and so what I would say is that where this project came from originally, it came, I'm part of the McMaster Institute for Research on Aging. Uh, and a few years ago, uh, I mean, we've had uh, at the university really uh, generous uh, investments from uh, Suzanne Labarge and the Labarge Foundation. And so where this grant started, uh, this project in Bolden started through some funding through the Labarge Center for Mobility and Aging. And when we think about these big topics about, you know, how do we support people to live well in the community? How do we avoid, you know, how do we address some of these challenges we're seeing in the healthcare system and think upstream to prevention and health promotion uh, you know, these are sort of some big questions that we're facing. And so through this interdisciplinary initiative, then that's where these ideas for Embolden started. Um, and I would say some of that was inspired by my work that we were some work we were doing uh, through our research unit as well, where we were really starting to think meaningfully about how do we engage patients as partners in our research teams. So this is through the strategy for patient-oriented research and looking at people with lived experience as having expertise that they bring and can share to make research, um, you know, make sure we're asking the right questions, make sure it's in an alignment with people's needs and priorities to actually support more rigorous and appropriate research methods uh, that we're implementing. And so I'm just touching on that because again, that's an important sort of foundational layer 
in what we do. And so then when I go back to embolden, we said right at the start, one of the issues is it's not that we, all of us as in society, most people know, you know, it's good for our health if we're physically active, mm-hmm. if we eat well, mm-hmm. if we're connected with other people. Like these aren't, those aren't sort of the lightning bolts or the things where it's like, oh, there's this new idea. But the challenge is there's a disconnect between what we know Yes. and what we do so it's so part of this project is really looking to bridge that gap and so even though there's all this research evidence that says people should be doing it we know that many of us don't do it and mm-hmm. and certainly lots of older adults are are not but there are a whole bunch of things that get in the way that make it harder it's not because people don't have the knowledge necessarily or don't have the intentions mm-hmm. it's just there are things that make it hard and especially we when we think with an equity lens and we right. think about those social determinants of health so for people you know who may have fewer financial resources who or who are worrying about meeting their basic needs I mean, these may not be their number one priority. So what we needed to do is say, like, how do we actually start to make some inroads and support behavioral change amongst the older adults who could benefit the most from these interventions? Like, how do we start to move that needle into some health promoting, more active living, independent um, behaviors that can help people to live well longer in their community of choice um, for as long as possible. Yes, and I I find your emboldened study so important and interesting because what you're highlighting in terms of bridging the gap between what we know and how we can facilitate that in practice, not only for ourselves, but for our communities. And I, I, I love that approach and thinking. One of the aspects that I noticed from looking at your project website is that you emphasize co-design mm-hmm. in this in your approach. Could you tell me more about this co-design aspect? I think it's super fascinating. Sure, thanks. And I was I realized as I had stopped, I actually hadn't gotten to talking about I made the connection to public participation and engaging people in our team, but I didn't really talk about how that fits with embolden. So at the start, we decided what we were going to do is work collaboratively with older adults. And this project started in Hamilton. So we're talking about older Hamiltonians um, from different uh, different areas of the city and thinking about people who might have experience, different experiences in terms of the determinants of health. And we said like, you know, we have to be a bit humble and say like, there are some things that researchers know and there are things that we don't know. And in fact, we're not the best people to answer those questions. And so we needed to talk to the older adults themselves and learn you know, what is it that they that got in the way? What are those barriers that we needed to tackle? How do we make like if those traditional programs and services and supports that are around in the in the community are available, but we're not connecting with the people who might benefit the most? Like, what do we need to learn and do differently to make it more accessible and appropriate for people where there's we're thinking about what's the hook for them? How do we communicate that hook? How do we get people to come out? And then once we get them out, how do we keep them? And so we heard a lot 
um, from our older adult partners, and we call them, they are our partners, and they inform the research process all the way through. And so we needed to hear from our partners about what that was like. And they told us not only, like we, we sort of brought some of the content, we brought the best available evidence to the table, and they told us about how, what the program should look like and what the program should feel like. And they told us how really important it was, for example, that we take an assets-based perspective. You know, that people aren't yes. treated like children, like they don't mm. know things or they haven't had these life experiences, but with older adults, we need to respect the things that they can bring to the table uh, respect that people are, are doing the best that they can with the, with the resources that they have and not be, take a deficits perspective, but we really needed to, you know, celebrate their assets and partner with them to help them to achieve their goals. So all of those things were so important and, uh, and really have shaped the way that we're now at a stage. So we did this extensive co-design process, and I can tell you more about that if you're interested. And then what it did was ultimately shape what the intervention looks like because we were co-designing this intervention or this new way of delivering a program in the community and we're now conducting a randomized control trial in various communities in Hamilton so at a neighborhood level we talk about it like a hyper local level because we know that some of the biggest barriers are if you are less mobile it's harder for you to get places you may not be traveling as far of distances or if you experience financial barriers you may not have a personal vehicle, you may take public transportation, or you may not, that may even be a barrier for you, and you may just go a short walkable distance. So we wanted to be able to, to implement it within really local, hyper-local communities. Um, and so that kind of approach shaped what we did and, and was taking some of those barriers into account. Yes, I would love to hear more about that co-design process, because as you're talking, what I'm thinking about is I'm sure there are listeners who are interested in these ideas of co-design in mm -hmm. research and implementing research from that co-design perspective. So I'd love to hear about that process and how you you had, I know that you're leading an interdisciplinary and intersectoral team, as well as having community partners inform that process. So learning more about that co-design process for you. And then also perhaps if there are insights that you've gained so far, now that you've moved into the randomized control trial phase, what are some of the insights from your community partners that you have gained? currently from leading this emboldened study? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ruth. I'm just jotting down a couple notes. Yes, um, great. <laughs> so if I think about the co-design process, so initially what we had set up, and I would say when we set up the project, then we set up our governance model. And so what we had done was set it up in a layered way. So we had a series of projects that were part of the initial co-design. We considered those our foundational projects. So step one was we did a bit of an environmental scan to understand what already existed in the community. We didn't wanna duplicate things that were already happening and were already working well, but our goal was to address gaps. So we really needed to understand where those gaps were. Um, and then we did a series of systematic reviews that, as I said, we brought that best available research evidence to the table to inform decision making. 
But and then we had a, a qualitative study as well, where we interviewed older adults and health and social service providers to sort of help to identify some of those design preferences. So what were those key design features that we should bring to our co-design process and consider? Um, so those are our foundational projects. And then overarching for that phase of the research, then we engaged with what we call our strategic guiding council. And so we assembled the strategic guiding council that includes a number of older adults who are citizens who live in the community from a range of different backgrounds, uh, as well as a wide number of organizational partners. So from health and social service sectors, and together they formed our strategic guiding council. And when it started, this was pre-COVID. So we initially had our oh, launch wow. event in person <laughs> um, where we started and we brought people together in a room. We had maps that mapped out what we had identified in each of the priority neighborhoods. And we said, this is what we've learned. You know, what, what do we need to know? What have we missed? Like really valuing that sort of lived experience expertise, both of the providers and of our older adults who lived in the community. So they told us what we needed to know to get started. Um, so we had a launch event and then started and we had planned this series of meetings that would help us to map out the different intervention components because we knew this was going to be a multifaceted intervention. And so we knew we had a series of meetings to map out those intervention components. So we had initiated that co-design process and then COVID hit. And so then wow. we had to shift to um, virtual co-design oh. uh, and think about, uh, you know, what this meant and how do we go forward? And it had originally been conceptualized as this in-person intervention. And, you know, we had, you know, really grappled about, are we going to be, uh, you know, delivering it in person? Are we waiting? Because we had no idea what we were in store for. Like, you're thinking like spring 2020, like we're already like, do we wait it out? Do we keep going? What do we do? Um, and our older adult partners said, we need to move. We need to figure it out because people are feeling this impact now. So, wow. you know, sometimes we would think we'd take it away. Like we would have these meetings and have these discussions and then we'd go away. And as you know, we'd also, you know, have sort of a small group of researchers and we'd be thinking, okay, how do we operationalize what we heard? How would we move forward on this? And sometimes we would think, okay, we'd go back to the guidance council and say, okay, this is what we think we're going to do. And they would say, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Or they would say, no, hold on a minute. And that's yeah. an example of one of those decisions where we'd sort of given it a think and thought, oh, I don't know if we can lay this out. I don't know, is it doing the same thing if we're delivering it virtually? Right. And they said, hold on a minute. It would be better to reach people, even if it's not how we originally envisioned, it would be better to reach people virtually because people are feeling socially isolated now. People are feeling disconnected. There are huge mental health impacts. We need to figure it out together. Um, so they said, keep going. And, and to be honest, it's been a, a really funny thing because sometimes, you know, in our day to day, we can get caught in these like, I don't know, like the operational decisions or sort of the minutia of research. And I would say our partners have been some of our biggest cheerleaders too. Mm. And if they if they ever end up listening to this, they would agree. They know we've told them this. Yes. Um, and uh, and so they'll you know they're always saying like this is so important, like this is so valuable what we're doing here. We really need to think about how we're supporting older adults in, our, in the community. And, and, you know, our health system is really or, oriented around illness, right? There are a, lot, a mm. lot of focus and that's where a lot of the financial investments are. But most people, many people are living in their communities 
And, and as I said, they're living with health conditions, but that's not the entirety of their lives. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they're, you know, yes. that's part of their lives, but it doesn't necessarily define them. Right. It's just figuring out how do they, you know, live as well as possible within these like changing bodies and changing contexts. So yes. anyway, so, so going back to the co-design, then we had these meetings where we would meet with them and we would, it, we actually did a few things. So we intentionally, even though we have a very large research team, said these meetings are to prioritize these voices and so the researchers were a smaller number at the table it was really important we heard from the older adults and it was really important that we heard from our organizational partners as well Um, and so instead what we had was this um, strategic guiding council that met regularly and then we sort of flew the, re- the researchers in as like resident experts on physical activity or resident experts on nutrition or, you know, various topics I love that. that we were talking about. And they were the guests at the table. Yes. Uh, I mean, they were certainly central and part of our project. Yes. Um, but from the guiding council perspective, they were, they came in and were presenting their information. And then we would say, so what does this mean? And what do we do with this? Yes. Um, and how do we operationalize this? What's this going to look like as we, as we design this intervention? I love that. What a, a shift in, in my frame of reference when I'm thinking about co-design as bringing in members of the community, the intersectoral collaboration, the interdisciplinary collaborations, but the focus then is on the communities and and that is centered. And then the researchers are coming in offering their expertise, but they are not at the center of the guiding council and they're they are important. I, I definitely hear you. So I don't want to interpret your, your saying that they're not important. Most certainly the researchers are important. And yet the center is the community and the voices in the community. Yeah. And I think that that was really important because what it did was say, we all have expertise. Mm-hmm. So certainly when the researchers came to the table, they were brought in because they were the experts in the focus of that particular meeting. Yes. But everyone has expertise to bring to our virtual table. And so it was really making sure that we created spaces for those, you know, for those voices uh, at that virtual table. Um, The other thing that we heard, and it changed from when we were meeting all together physically in one room to when we were, we ended up with a growing group. We have actually a lot (laughs) of um, support for our guiding council, which is wonderful. It's really incredible um, that people have been able to give us, you know, be so generous with their time um, and help us to try to get it right. Um, And so then they also, if we were bringing people together, then the group, uh, our partner said it was really, Some of them didn't really feel comfortable on Zoom speaking in front of a group of, say, 25, (laughs) when we Mm -hmm. had really good turnout. Um, And so we needed to create different ways of engaging with them with breakout rooms and creating spaces and having intentional questions so that they knew why they were there. And they knew we had intentionally created our agendas that that gave spaces uh, that might be less content heavy, but gave spaces because our purpose was to hear. We needed mm-hmm. to hear and have that information shape our decisions. And so if you're bringing people together, I, I've said this many times, if you're bringing people together um, with a lot of expertise or diverse expertise, and you don't actually give them space 
or, 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 and you don't have that opportunity or capitalize on that opportunity to hear from them, that's a missed opportunity. Because otherwise, why would we bring them together? If we're yeah. just pushing information, there are different ways to push information. But if it's too heavily focused on, on pushing information and we're not hearing enough, then we're actually not making the most of that time together. Mm. Rebecca, as you're talking, I, I just am thinking to myself, wow, there are so many aspects of your leadership approach and in, in the co-design process and as you lead the Bolton project that I, I feel like, oh, I want to learn from. I, I want to learn how you have taken on this leadership role and enacted your leadership role within this project as one that truly embodies the co-design principles, as well as the, the understanding that everyone has a voice and everyone offers expertise and can speak at this table. So I really appreciate that in, in listening to what you're sharing. I'm, I'm curious about this, in addition to the research perspective and the approaches that we can learn from what you're doing in Embolden, I'm also curious about the implications and any initial perhaps insights that you've gained as you've carried out the, uh, the co-design part and as you're moving into the randomized control trial point right now, thinking specifically about us as listeners, and we, we may be wondering, well, what are some strategies that I can take or what are some uh, approaches that I can glean from your, your study that I could then apply to either my own life or to the communities with which I work that arise from your, your, from Embolden and what you've learned in this process. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a, a big question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess, and I'm not sure if I'm answering it directly to start, but I feel like um, emboldened for me is both a privilege and a responsibility. So it is a privilege to work with all of these team members. And it is something, it is a project that is, it's, it's pretty large and it can't be done by one person. Like it's sort of, you know, the classic, like many hands make light work. And I, I, I think it's really, um, you know, we strategically, I use that word a lot, I guess, um, we, we strategically bring people together. Um, and so how do we make the most of those synergies? Or how do we actually ensure that the sum is greater than the, mm. the individual parts? Yes. Um, and so I think some of those things are really acknowledging so uh, like acknowledging team contributions so anyone from our undergraduate students our graduate students our postdoctoral fellow research team members interdisciplinary team members we're happy to celebrate the successes of our older partners or our, you know people who have things happen as far as our organizational partners is like really acknowledging those um those successes those wins uh and they could be small wins and they could be big wins but really 
um, being able to share that success. Um, and I think as well, I would think, uh, I think there are strategies in terms of, you know, thinking about interdisciplinary research teams. So if we're just talking about research teams and, and we often, uh, to be uh, successful in funding these days, the expectation is that we have interdisciplinary research teams. Well, we brought people onto a team for a reason. Um, they had, you know, content expertise, they had methodological expertise. So trying to ensure that when those conversations happen, um, or those, uh, those opportunities in a project could glean or benefit from their expertise, bringing them back in. Because we have some people who are, you know, more involved regularly, and then we have people who are less, uh, you know, in less regular contact with us. And we all have really busy lives. So really trying to draw in where people have their expertise and, and, um, and make sure that what we're doing uh, is benefiting from that expertise. And, and I would say that's true for any, any roles. Um, I think it's looking at who has the knowledge and skills and time and, uh, and interest and trying to also think about, we have people at various stages of career. So what's the win for them? Like what's in it for them? And not that people are going in with selfish, um, you know, for selfish reasons, but like right. hopefully at the end of the day, everybody feels like there was a win for them personally or financially or not financially personally <laughs> sorry I'll say that again <laughs> we're hoping that at the end of the day there's a win for people either personally or professionally or both um, from being involved in the project mm. yes there's there's that uh, mutual benefit that mm. allows for not only that personal or professional goals to be accomplished but also I imagine that there's a personal growth aspect to being involved with Embolden as well. That's sure, that's what I, I'm envisioning. Yeah, as you're yeah. talking, I just think, wow, these communities, and as as you're meeting with community members, oh, I just think, wow, what an opportunity to be connected and to have that sense of true community and connection around where you live. So at this point, where are you in the Embolden uh, project study? I've been referring to it as a, a variety of things, but where are you with Embolden and where are you headed? Sure. Yeah. So where we are right now, we're sort of what we call our phase two of the project. So um, after we did the co-design, we did an, an initial pilot uh, testing and we actually delivered that virtually initially. We had a very small pilot last summer where we tested the intervention. Um, and then since the fall, um, then we launched our larger randomized control trial and it's now delivered in person. So we now have, we've gone back to that um, wow. because it was all in alignment with, um, with public health guidance around what we yes. could do around, you know, keeping people safe is really important, especially, you know, older people, um, even if they're more well, just knowing the age related potential vulnerability related to infectious disease and COVID in particular. Um, so we had to yes. be really careful about that and cognizant of that about what people were willing to do and what they wanted to do so um and, and what would get people out and and actually after we did the initial virtual pilot then we heard from participants that they were like it was good but we'd really like to have it in person like we we think that that would have been beneficial and then the people who have been um 
they're participating in person, they're saying, oh, this was really timely and, and all of the things. So I would say you asked where we're at. We're at with the trial. Um, so we're in the midst of implementing the trial. Ultimately, we'll have 500 participants um, wow. and we are rolling across um, eight different sites in the city of Hamilton. Um, and then we also, along the way, um, we started, I mentioned that we started with funding through the Labarge Center for Mobility and Aging. And since then, um, we've been successful in securing uh, a match funding grant through the Public Health Agency of Canada. So that's allowing us to reach more people. Um, and we have a newer partnership with an agency in Toronto. So uh, Mira, McMaster Institute for Research on Aging, has partnered with an agency called Dixon Hall, which provides supports to community members in the downtown east of Toronto. And Mira Dixon Hall said um, that they were very interested in Embolden, and so we will also be going to Toronto to do this. Um, and I should say that our, our project all along, we were co-designing it, but it was always designed with scale up in mind. So we always wanted it to be something that had sort of fixed components. So the physical activity, the healthy eating, the social participation and system navigation. So helping people to connect with the health and social services that were in, in, line, in alignment with their needs. So we always wanted those components, but we also wanted it to be adaptable to each community. Yes. Um, and so because we designed with scale up in mind, then they said, do you think you could bring it? Like, could we take it somewhere else like to Toronto? We said, well, that was always our intended goal was to be able to take it other places. It would need a bit of co-design and adaptation, but then you're rather than co-designing from inception, yes. or original ideas, then you're co-designing to adapt. Exactly. And that was always designed in mind. Um, and the other thing is, is that we, um, I mentioned the strategic guiding council, but the other thing that we have, the other layer of our governance is we also have local community advisory boards. Mm -hmm. So in each neighborhood grouping, then we have, so the people who are on the guiding council have more of a citywide lens, like the organizations that are at the table, they operate throughout the city or multiple locations in the city. And then the local community advisory boards, again, have older adults who live in that neighborhood. We have um, health and social service providers, and there may be sort of agencies that are just operating in one area of the city. And there may be, and the resources are going to look, the assets and the gaps are going to be look quite or, or somewhat different depending on where you are in the city. So we wanted to be able to shift the relative emphasis. So for example, if it was an area that has a lot of physical activity resources, maybe there's less emphasis on you know, helping people to connect with those kinds of supports because they're already connecting. Or if there's an area where there's a real food desert, you know, then maybe we're having more emphasis on that nutrition component or that healthy eating component. So it's just trying to look at how we can adapt it to different neighborhoods. So where we are right now is we are now in our um, second neighborhood of the full trial um, and planning for, so right now it's sort of at the midpoint and it goes until the end of March and we're planning um, now, we've been in the downtown core area, a couple of neighborhoods, and we're moving to the Hamilton Mountain for the spring and summer of 2023. So we're planning for that, looking at how we're promoting it in those communities um, and moving forward. At the same time, we're laying those foundations. We've been working in partnership with Dixon Hall. So we're starting to lay the groundwork for when we do go to Toronto in that downtown East area and how what it's gonna look like there. I love that because as you're describing your 
partnership with Dixon Hall, I'm already seeing that phase three being implemented, uh, phase three of Embolden being implemented where it, it makes so much sense when you're saying you're laying the groundwork now, because I understand that in your phase three, you want to focus on sustainability and scalability. And so now you have this new area or a partnership in Toronto and you're taking that co-design thread and you're drawing it all the way into your, your phase three. And as you build new partnerships in uh, uh, other communities, then you're taking that co-design approach to then implement, some, uh, implement something that would be relevant and applicable to the communities themselves. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so we're thinking about as well. So as much as we're in the midst of this grant, then we've had lots of conversations with various collaborators in, you know, in other universities or other settings. And I think it's something, I think it seems to be really timely. It's really resonating with people. And so I have colleagues who are saying, oh, I do a lot of work in this space around naturally occurring retirement communities. We, I could see how we could bring Embolden into the work that we do, and they do slightly different work, but very complementary. Yes. So we could bring it to this location. Or I know I have other colleagues, um, you know, who say, well, I'm doing some work in these uh, Indigenous communities in one of the Western provinces. And it would have to look different, but I'd be interested in bringing the idea to our elders and the community just to say, yes. like, what do you think about this? And what would this look like? And is, you know, would we want to explore this? So there are a lot of directions we could go um, in terms of next steps. Um, and so we're now, as I said, we're uh, as much as we're in the midst of this grant, we're already starting to think about what is our next you know, what, you know, are we looking to apply for a CIHR grant? And if, you know, and when is the right time for us? And when we do, what's our 2.0? And we've had these conversations yes. in our team about, you know, well, that's 2.0 and that's 3.0. And like, so, but it's like, it's just, I would say as well, um, I started by saying it's, you know, it's a joy and a privilege and I feel that way. And so, I, and I, and I feel like there's this like really positive energy around the project that many of us feel. And so it's like, yeah, this is a good thing. Like we're on the right track. Yes. Um, and then I, I actually was, we had a, a meeting just not too long, um, you know, before you and I met today. And I was saying, the great thing is, is now, so it's a trial, but it's a mixed methods trial. And we're connecting qualitative interviews of people who are receiving the intervention. And then we're hearing things from them talking about, you know, how they see a difference in their physical ability and how far they can walk or how they navigate snowy sidewalks or as a benefit of the intervention or someone who's talking about, oh, I really love all the recipes and I love to use them. And I've been talking to my family about this or, you know, participants who say like we exchanged emails or phone numbers and now we're going to meet up afterwards. So it's like doing all the things yes. that we designed it to do. So that's really exciting to hear um, that it's benefiting people in you know many of the ways we were hoping and in ways that we hadn't even imagined so I mean that's an exciting time to hear that I mean obviously with a trial 
you know, we've got a ways to go before we have those quantitative results, but we're hearing qualitatively as well from the intervention team, you know, that they're delivering it in ways that, you know, that we had co-designed it. Yes. Um, that was the vision of community members, that it's being delivered as planned. And then we're hearing from participants that they're seeing some of those benefits that we had hoped it would yes. create in people's lives. Yes, that's what I'm I'm getting from you too. I, I feel such an excitement in hearing these stories because immediately I, I think back to the start of our conversation where we're talking about it's not it's one thing to have the intellectual knowledge that healthy eating, physical activity is important, beneficial, et cetera. And it's another thing to apply or to uh, enact that in our lives, in the lives of our community members. And what I'm hearing is that there is feedback that is demonstrating that you're you're helping to bridge that gap and through Embolden. That's that's really exciting. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, it is really, uh, it's super exciting, but I think as well, you know, some of the things, just to give like a concrete example. So I gave an example around recipes and and it's not just about, you know, improving knowledge, but like it's also, you know, as an example of where we benefited from the co-design, you know, we really heard uh, loud and clear. And this made sense to me because it, it reflected what I, you know, some of the things that I knew from practice, but you're not, you can't talk to people about, you know, healthy food choices if the issue is access. Mm -hmm. So if for people, mm -hmm. there's an issue of food access, then how do we support people in connecting with, you know, food resources and, or how do we help and support people to make the best um, choices that they can uh, within the resources that they have? Yes. You know, so, I mean, those were important things to think about the framing because it's not just health promoting messages, right. but actually, if we're hoping that people are going to action the messages, um, then we have to make sure that our messages are actually appropriate to their context and make sense in their worlds. Right. And you're, and that there are uh, recognizing the social determinants of health, that there are structures and resources available to facilitate access to mm -hmm. these uh, these health promoting activities behaviors and approaches mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. wow thank you thank you rebecca i really appreciate hearing about embolden and i also really uh, love hearing about this co-design process that you've enacted throughout the different stages or, or phases of embolden. And also I, I'm going to be reflecting on just the, the leadership skill that you are demonstrating as, as you're leading this project and um, moving it forward. And I really appreciate hearing your insights about how you've thought strategically and your team uh, has thought very strategically about the, uh, directions that you would take as you carry out Embolden. Thank you for that. My pleasure. It's been fun. I feel like have we gone through our time? It was, uh, <laughs> it was great to be able to connect with you, Ruth. And I'm always, as I said, I'm always happy to be able to share about Embolden. It's a, it's a project uh, that brings me, uh, I benefit from as much as, uh, as I feel that I contribute. So it's uh, really 
I'm always happy to be able to share it with others. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's M-A-C-P-F-D.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.